Come on in and grab a seat. We are going to go, go ahead and get started. It's a, it's a great day today. It's Sunday. We're in the house of the Lord together, so that's always a great thing. And Back in the book of Numbers, we get to our study back. Uh, in the book of Numbers, we've been away from that for a while, and then um, the Chiefs are in the AFC Championship game today, so <laughs> it's a great day. It's a great day. I think there's some sort of holy trinity in those three things. I don't know. I think I'm going to look into that. But before we all go home and root the Chiefs on to victory, we do have some business to do here. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And as I just mentioned, we are finally getting back into our series on the book of Numbers. You guys who have been around know this. It's, it's called Prime Numbers, looking at those selected stories out of this book. And we've been away from it for a while, since before Christmas, and we did the, the Christmas series. But the holidays are past. Life is, is back to normal, you know, 2020 style, whatever that means and however that looks for you. But what we're going to see today in Numbers chapter 20 is the, the dire consequences of disobedience. And that's, our, that's the title of our message today. And listen, I mean, if you've been around and, and heard these messages out of the book of Numbers, you, you'll know that in one sense this isn't new at all. We've seen disobedience and rebellion from the children of Israel over and over again. And we've also seen some dire consequences along the way with that disobedience. You know, consequences you know, that included things like death. I, I think that would fall under the category of dire. So what I think I'm saying is that, that my title for this message could have been the title for every message we've preached since Numbers chapter 11. That just shows you the, the high level of creativity I possess. But the truth is, Numbers chapter 20 is different. And it's different because the disobedience is from, and therefore the consequences are directed at Moses and Aaron. And because of their sin, in this one instance, in, in what we will see as seemingly a, a moment of frustration, they're not allowed to enter the promised land. And there, there is, at least for me, a, a sort of a sense at, at first reading and in my own human comprehension that, that the penalty seems a little harsh for the crime. I mean, particularly with respect to Moses. I mean, you know, I, I, Moses was a good dude. I mean, if nothing else, he had that whole meekest man on the earth thing going for him. So it's like, man, God, does it have to be this? I mean, couldn't you cut him a little slack this time? I mean, this one, this is one weak moment. And that's kind of how I read it at first glance. But I, I think by the time we finish this message, you'll understand that God cares very deeply about certain things including his own glory and the, some of the pictures that he wants to put out there. And he has good reasons for everything he does, including this stiff punishment for Moses and Aaron. So, so right here, before we even get into the message, I, I, I wanna, I'm going to tell you what I want you to get out of it, what you need to get out of this message today. And I want you to understand very clearly that if you don't care about the very important things that God cares about, that you are putting yourself at risk. 
for some dire consequences in your life as well. And listen, God is the God of second chances. We know that. And if you mess up, he'll forgive you. He will continue to even use you. We're going to see that with Moses. But you have to know that some things might never be the same. And there are just some decisions that change your destiny. We're going to look at that today. So let's get into the details. Numbers chapter 20, starting at verse 1. We'll read down through verse 13. So follow along with me. The Bible says, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness, that we and our cattle should die here, there? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us in unto this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered together the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Mirabah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we love you so much today, and, and we love your word. And, and Lord, um, as we dive into it today, I pray that you teach us that and there are some things that, that you care so deeply about, Lord, that, that we need to care about them as well. So I pray that for our hearts, that you would prepare us for for, for the words that you're going to deliver. And, and, and Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it is glorifying to you. Lord, I pray that you will use it in our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have three points this morning to help us work through this story, and then we're going to try to bring it together uh, at the end and give you a little bit of practical advice. And our, our first point for study, the first thing I want you to notice today, is Israel's same problem. We see Israel's same problem. I mean, here we go again. It is Groundhog Day in Kadesh. Because the children of Israel seem to always be murmuring and complaining about something. And this chapter is obviously no exception. We see in verse 1 that Miriam dies, and that actually gets little attention. We talked about that some when we went through Numbers chapter 12, so we're not going to rehash that today. But after that, they start right in. Look at verse 2 again. 
And there was no water for the congregation. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, and we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us in unto this evil place? There's no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. Now, before I speak too harshly about the children of Israel, I do want to point out that the reason why they're so upset and they're complaining is because there's no water for the congregation. And I don't know, I mean, maybe that would make me grumpy too. Water is required to, you know, live and stuff like that. Medical news today told me that while there are not surprisingly varying factors, the average person can live only three days without water. Here's how they describe it. Dehydration happens quickly, causing extreme thirst, fatigue, and ultimately organ failure and death. A person may go from, from feeling thirsty and slightly sluggish on the first day with no water to having organ failure by the third. So that's not nothing. I don't know what day we were on in verse 2, and if, if they were just thirsty or if their organs had began failing. <laughs> but what I know from this is the complaint in and of itself was valid and urgent. And I, just, I point that out because many times when it comes to your complaints and my complaints with the Lord, maybe with this church or with other Christians, there are times that those complaints are valid and maybe even urgent. But here's the thing. The personal issue you need to deal with any time you have a complaint isn't validity and urgency. The real issue you need to work on is always attitude and trust. That means the question for you in those times is how do you handle it? Do you put the problem in the Lord's hands and trust that he will do right by you like he always does? Or do you, like the Israelites, do you do like them, who gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron and showed with them and showed or to chide? It just means to complain, to debate, to be adversarial. So do you get upset? and complain about how things aren't fair, and how you haven't been treated fairly, how you haven't been treated the right way, or do you give it to the Lord and trust that he's going to work it out however it needs to work out? And I'm, I'm not even pretending that this is easy, particularly when your complaint is valid and urgent. Because when your complaint is valid and urgent, you feel justified in your position. And therefore, when you feel justified in your position, you expect justice. But listen, that justice that you expect is just according to you and your feelings, not necessarily the Word of God. And you don't know everything God knows. I want you to think of Job. This is a man who had everything taken away from him. You, You likely know the story of Job. 
everything taken away, including his family. He was given boils all over his body. You name it, it probably happened to him. And it happened all because of a conversation between God and Satan in heaven. And even in the midst of everything he was dealing with, the Bible says this about Job in Job 1.22, and all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So he was a good man. He even had a good attitude. But as time went on, he did begin to have some complaints and some questions. And his attitude and trust started to shift just a little bit. But again, Job's complaints were valid and even urgent. He was dealing with very real trauma in that moment. And it wasn't because of anything he had done. It wasn't his fault. He was the innocent party. But when God finally does show up in chapter 38, I want you to see what he said. Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, Job, you have no clue. You don't understand what's going on. You are using words, but you know nothing. And he goes on. I mean, read chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? Where were you? He said, you don't know what is going on behind the scenes. You don't know what the truth actually is. You do feel justified in your complaints, but you're without knowledge. And that describes us many times, too. And so what we need to do is just trust him. Because when you don't, you end up being like the Israelites. And that's not good, I'm telling you, not in this case. You see, what the Israelites did in the midst of their valid and urgent complaint was they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And I want you to notice the contrast of the words used there. Our King James Bible is a beautiful thing. It says they gathered themselves together against they gather themselves together against and those are opposites so they drew a line and they gathered as many people as they could on their side who would agree with their position and they said we're on this side and you're on that side do you know what should have happened you know how this verse should have read if they would have done it right They should have gathered themselves together with Moses and Aaron. Not against. Okay, there's a problem. We understand. Fine. But instead of drawing lines and making sides and telling everyone how you're right and they're wrong, what should happen is everyone just get together and work it out. Start with an attitude of togetherness instead of being against. We just start applying Ephesians 4 in our complaints. In verse 26, it says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. Listen, the devil's a stealer, and he wants to steal relationships. He wants to steal joy. He wants to steal peace. Don't let him do that anymore. If you're in Christ, he has no rule over you. Let him steal no more. 
but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, he may give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. That's what happens when you work together against. Grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I'm telling you, that will solve nearly all of your problems with other people. And you say, well, that sounds good, but I can't do it. Well, then I can't help you. Because I can only tell you what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And if you can't do it, you're like Israel. And like I said, things here don't end well for them. Because when you take that non-trusting approach and putting it in the Lord's hands and say, listen, we're going to work it out. I don't know how, but we're going to trust in the Lord. He's going to do a work. If you don't do that, and you take a non-trusting approach in situations, it always ends in carnality. It always ends in backsliding. And I say that because it's what we see in this passage. Look at what the children of Israel said when they chode with Moses and Aaron. Numbers 20, verse 3, And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? And Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness? That we and our cattle should die there. Well, wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt and bring us into this evil place? There's no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. They just complain, and their complaint is they want to go back to Egypt. And we've seen this before, and how Egypt pictures the world system and all its pride and bondage. And you have to know that the world is always calling you. The world will always be calling you. It's always going to tempt you to turn back. And if you're not placing your trust in the Lord in the midst of your problem, it's going to be enticing. It's going to be enticing for you. But the world is a liar. And there is nothing good there. That's what the Bible tells us. 1 John 2, 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's nothing good there. And it will just get you to see things incorrectly. Because did you notice what they said in verse 5? They called the wilderness an evil place. That's a lie. The wilderness, as it pictures for us, is that spiritual walk. It's the necessary process to spiritual maturity. Now, it's not easy. It's very tough at times. But it is not the evil place. Egypt is the evil place. And if you don't look at it like that, then you are blind. But for many of us, we're blind. That's our problem. And if we were to be honest, we would have to admit that we don't consider the world an evil place at all. You know, I, I read John, 1 John 2.16. I didn't read 1 John 2.15 that tells you to love not the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But unfortunately, 
too many times that can't be said of many of us. A.W. Tozer has a quote. He says, the idea that this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted and practiced by the vast majority of Christians. And what a shame, because the world is evil. And don't be fooled. But not only did they confuse the evil place, they went on to say, there's no place of seed or of figs or of vine or of pomegranates. And while that all might have been true, that wasn't their problem. Their problem was no water. And yet, they just sort of tacked that on to the end of verse 5. Kind of like, oh yeah, neither is there any water to drink. So I don't know if you fully understand what's going on here, but their complaint, which started out as valid, has lost all of its validity. Because now they're complaining about not having figs or grapes or pomegranates, which had nothing to do with the problem that started all this mess. And that happens to us too. We get upset about something. Maybe even something valid. But if we don't trust the Lord with it and through it, then it always turns into something more than what's even there. And your mind goes to all sorts of places it shouldn't. And you come up with new problems that aren't even real or at a minimum aren't related to the issue at hand. And it's just carnality. And, and, and really, that's the bottom line. How mature are you in the Lord? Because if you would just trust and walk through the wilderness, the wilderness is meant to bring stress and problems in life because you have to go through them to get to spiritual maturity. You have to be able to trust the Lord in them. But if you would walk through and trust looking to the Lord, that spiritual maturity, that destination would give you everything you desire. And that is the irony of this whole complaint. Because the children of Israel desired figs and grapes of the vines and pomegranates on top of water. Do you know where they could have got that and so much more? Canaan. The promised land that pictures for us that spiritual maturity in our walk with the Lord. When we looked in Numbers chapter 13, we looked at the report that those spies brought back from Canaan. Here's part of what they said about the promised land in Numbers 13, 23. And they came into the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between, bear it two upon a staff. They, had, they were so big they had to carry it on, on a staff. And what else? And they brought of pomegranates and of figs. It's everything they wanted. But it was too much work. And it was too difficult to just follow through on what God had for them. They wanted to get that from Egypt. So I, I have to ask, does that describe you? Does that describe me? Do you want all that God has for you? But you don't want to do what it takes to get it according to God's plan. Do you want the blessings of the Lord? But you kind of wish they would come through what the world has to offer. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Laodicean and lukewarm. And God hates it. Revelation 3, we've seen this, verses 15 and 16. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, 
thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Talking to that church of Laodicea that represents the church of our age today. And I think it's a perfect description of this scenario because you want spirituality and worldliness at the same time. Because, because listen, Israel they kept talking all along, not just here, they kept talking all along about how Egypt was better. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? But do, do you know what they never did? They never went back. They didn't gather themselves together and pack up and tell Moses that they're going back to Egypt. But they also weren't willing to fight the battles they had to fight to enter into the promised land. They wanted to run down the middle and complain about all of it. All of it. And I think that sounds a lot like us sometimes. Revelation 3 says it makes God sick. It's not how he designed us to live life. And it's so crazy to even think about, but God would rather us be cold and go all the way back to Egypt than to be lukewarm. Have you ever even thought about that? It's a crazy thought, but it's what the Bible says. But listen, in our Laodicean mindset, we can't bring ourselves to do that because we want it all. We want it all. We're like the rebels Elijah was preaching to in 1 Kings 18. He says, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. We want to hedge our bets and follow both. We want spirituality and worldliness at the same time. There are two things that are polar opposites. And yet we, we, care, we care about both. But you can't. I mean, you know this, Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. For you'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That was Israel's problem. And it's our problem too. It's the same old, same old. And we continue to make the same mistakes over and over, just like they did. But God gives the solution, like he always does, because he's gracious and loving and way better than we deserve. That's what we see next in the story. Point number two is you see God's specific prescription. God's specific prescription. Look at verse 6. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto them, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod. And gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. So we've got the children of Israel complaining again. Moses and Aaron seek the Lord on their behalf, like they've done many times before. It's the right response, it's the correct response, and they do it. And God answers, and God gives the solution to the problem, which had nothing to do with figs and grapes and pomegranates, by the way. He only addressed the real problem. And I, I, I chose the words of, of this point carefully because God's answer was very specific. 
He gave very specific instructions, a very specific prescription to solve the problem. But before we get to what it is, I'm going to lay it out kind of point by point. I do have to say that this answer, this specific prescription, came through God speaking. Verse 7, And the Lord spake unto Moses. And I just want to make the point that every problem out there has a solution found in the word and words of God. Without question. And I know that there may even be some of you out there that don't necessarily agree with that last statement I just made. And listen, you don't have to agree with me, but I say it confidently and unapologetically. The word of God contains the answer to every problem. And there are people out there that that don't, maybe this is you, maybe it's not, but there are people out there that wouldn't believe that statement, but would, at some level, believe and agree with the authority of the Word of God. It's just that they don't believe in its sufficiency. And so they would say it's authoritative in everything it talks about. But it doesn't talk about everything. The Bible doesn't know of things we know about today like mental health and and well-being and those sorts of things. And to that, all all I can say is what Ecclesiastes 1.9 says. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. You see, the Bible knows and speaks of all Because everything found in the Bible is divinely inspired. It is positively and absolutely without question the truth, according to John 17, 17. And everything else lacks divine authority. But not only that, not only is everything in the Bible is divinely inspired truth, everything found in the Bible is also eternal truth. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It is eternal. It knows all. And it covers all. And you say, well, I've tried the Bible. And it didn't work. I just say the Bible wasn't the problem. And we're going to talk about this more in a little bit. But you have to, you have to consider your approach to the Bible. And so let me try to explain it this way. We all know we live in, in physical bodies, but it, there's a spiritual realm, and we deal with problems, and as part of spiritual warfare, it's part of our wilderness journey. So I want you to think about it like that for a second, and I want to use the example of our physical military. If you are in the military, when you see your commanding officer, somebody who outranks you, the first thing you're obligated to do is salute. And that salute is a recognition that you are in submission. When it comes to spiritual warfare, that ought to be the first thing in our agenda. When we run to God, we say, God, I have a problem. And I cannot fix it myself. So I lay myself out before you. I'm going to think your thoughts. And I believe you can fix me according to your word. According to your word. That your word will do the work. And it will work. Now, it might take a minute so God can see what kind of faith he's working with. Man, again, it's a spiritual journey. God's testing your faith. 
But it's kind of like this. If you're trying to knock down a wall, you know, with a hammer, with a sledgehammer, you know, you might hit it that first time. And it might hurt you a lot more than it hurts the wall. And you might not see any impact. You might not, there might be nothing visible that happens. And you might hit it several times and see no result. But each hit is weakening the wall. And you may not see it, but it's working. And then all of a sudden you see a crack, and that crack tells you that it's having an impact. Jeremiah 23, 29 says the word of God is just like that. Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire, like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? So if you're consistently going to the word of God, you may not see the result right away, but that doesn't mean it's not working. It is working. And if you keep obeying, obeying, you will eventually see the result. That wall in your life will fall as long as you use the word of God against it and use it like a hammer. Keep hitting. So let me give you a piece of practical advice in the most sensitive way that I can. When you're in the midst of the battle, stop pulling out a Kleenex and crying about what's going on. And start pulling out the word of God and fight back. That's obedience. That's what God wants you to do. He doesn't want you to try to fight your issues in your own willpower. That will always end in tears. He wants you to use his power. And you do that in obedience to his word. And it will work every time. If you approach it the right way, we're going to come back to that. So it's the word and words of God that matter. Nothing else is going to give you everything you need. And back in Numbers chapter 20, it was water that they needed. And God gave them the prescription to get it through his words. And the prescription for Moses and Aaron was fourfold. Now God said he's going to do some things, but there were four things specifically that he told Moses and Aaron to do, and, and, and directly Moses. Four things that they were to do. First of all, number one, they were to take the rod. We looked at the rod in Numbers chapter 17. This would be that same rod, that rod of Aaron that budded. And we know that for a few reasons. Um, I'll just give you a couple. It doesn't really matter, but I'll give you a couple. First of all, they were at the door of the tabernacle. That's where the rod of Aaron was kept. We saw that in Numbers 17. We also know because of what God said in Numbers 17.10. The Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. And what we're going to see in a second is when Moses addresses the Israelites in verse 10 of Numbers 20, he calls them rebels. And there's only one other time in Scripture that they're called that. So, so we have a, a pertinent cross-reference that helps us kind of hone in to, to this rod that, w- that we've already talked about. So that was the first thing. Take the rod. It represented God's authority. Take the rod. Then second, they were to gather the assembly. So they were to get everyone together. They were to bring everyone in. So that, number three, they could speak under the rock before their eyes. That was instruction. Take the rod, gather the assembly, speak under the rock before their eyes, and then fourth, bring them water. In between there, God said he was going to bring forth water. But that's him. That, that was God. Moses had nothing to do with that. God was going to bring forth the water. Therefore, the fourth command was for them to bring them the water because God was going to provide it. 
And that was God's specific prescription. Four steps for Moses and Aaron. But let's look at what they did. And this is our third point, because what we see next is Moses' spirit provoked. Moses' spirit was provoked. And this is where things go off the rails. And we see the dire consequences of Moses' disobedience. Look at verse 9. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Step one, we're good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock as he said unto them. Step two, we're still cruising along just fine. But now we're about to run into some trouble. In verse 10, And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he has sanctified them there. Okay, so we just saw God's specific prescription, those specific instructions. But Moses didn't follow them all the way. He, he took some liberties with God's instructions because he was finally fed up. And he was ticked at everything the Israelites had put him through. And his spirit was provoked. That's what the Bible says. I'm not, I'm not even making that up. That is what the Bible says. In Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33, it says, They angered him, speaking of Moses, also at the waters of strife. That's Mirbah. That's what it means. That word means strife, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. Because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. And, and like I mentioned at the beginning, like, you know, can you blame him? I mean, he's been dealing with this for a while now. And that's why I said, to me, at first glance, the punishment seems a little harsh. But I'm going to tell you why it isn't. And, and this should be very sobering for us. It's because Moses made three major mistakes. These are three things that God cares about very deeply. One, he disobeyed God's command. God had given him those specific instructions, and he didn't do them. He only did the first two. He took the rod, he gathered the assembly together, and then he, then he didn't with the last two, he did his own thing. And, and down in Numbers 20, down in verse 23 and 24, God put it this way, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the uh, coast of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people. This is Aaron was going to die, and so he was telling him. For he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. It was rebellion. We've talked about rebellion. It was disobedience against God's word. And, And direct disobedience against God's commands is something he takes very seriously. You see, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, but instead he spoke to the children of Israel. 
and anger. And he was supposed to bring them water after God provided it. But in his frustration, he smote the rock twice and he let them get the the water themselves. And in doing that, God wasn't sanctified or set apart and glorified for the miracle of providing that water. And there are a couple of lessons in that that I want to show you really quick. The first lesson is to leaders, to pastors and deacons and ministry heads. If you're one of our LFBI students, listen up. If you analyze those four steps of God's prescription, you see that our job is to speak to those that we're leading through the authority of God, that rod, only after you've spoken to the Lord, after you've spoken to the rock. We're going to explain that in a second. And then through that intimacy with the Lord, you lift him up as you bring the water of the word to them. If you look at the wording, it says his water. It's his water. But unfortunately, like Moses too many times, in our pride, we go straight to those we're ministering to without going to Christ and humility first. And when we speak, it's our words and not His. And when we speak our words and not His, we sanctify ourselves instead of Him. And when that happens, all the people are left to go get the water themselves because we didn't bring it to them. We didn't bring them water from the Lord. We didn't bring His water. We brought our own water. That water does nothing. My water gives you nothing. His water, you'll never thirst again. So if I'm not bringing you His words, then I fail. And we're to do that even in the midst of frustrating circumstances. That's the first lesson. But the second lesson's for everyone else, non-leaders, whoever. If you're a church member here, I have to say something to you. But you have to hear it in the spirit in which it's being said because it's going to sting just a little. But I promise you that it's being said out of love. So you ready? No? Okay, I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) What you need to do is try to not be the source of frustration for your leaders. And when people are constantly murmuring and complaining and provoking, you eventually get fed up. And we try to be godly, but we struggle with certain things too. And speaking as a leader, and I am only speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for anyone else. I'm only speaking for myself. I I must say, it does get tiring dealing with Christians who act like babies and should be mature. And they know what to do, but they just won't do it. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about someone else. (laughs) But that does wear on you and provoke your spirit after a while. I mean, listen, I guess it's tough for everyone in Laodicea. So how about this? We'll work on our part if you work on yours. Deal? All right. 
So that was the first major mistake, disobeying God's command. The second major mistake that God made, and we're building to something here, so stick with me, is he distracted from God's glory. You see, when he disobeyed God's word, he also distracted from and ultimately stole God's glory. He was to speak to the rock, and water would miraculously come forth, but he didn't do that. Instead, he spoke to the people, and he smote the rock twice. And look again at what he said when he spoke to the people in verse 10. Hear hear now, ye rebels, which is the same thing God called them, by the way, in, in chapter 17. Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And he included himself. Like there was something special in him to help get the water And in doing that, he put himself in a position that was reserved for God and God alone. See, God said in verse 12 that he was to be sanctified, again, set apart, glorified for performing this miracle of the water. But Moses took that from him. Psalm 115, verse 1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Glory belongs to God alone. And he takes that very seriously. But there was one more thing that Moses did. And this is the big one. He destroyed God's picture. He destroyed God's picture. Because what God had set up through this need and then provision of water was to be a beautiful picture of his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was and is the rock. When speaking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And, and did, speaking of them, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And out of that rock was to come living water, provided miraculously by God the Father alone. Kind of like what Jesus said about himself in John 4.10. Jesus answered and said unto her, this is with a Samaritan woman, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. In John 7, verses 37 and 38, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Which is maybe why you see this in John 19, 34, when Jesus was on the cross, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. What a beautiful picture there of Christ and his sacrifice for us, so that we never have to thirst again. But Moses messed it up. And he turned the picture into something completely different. Because Moses didn't just speak to the rock like the Lord told him to do. Instead, he smote the rock twice. And he had already, he had already smitten the rock once before. In Exodus 17, Starting in verse 4, we see the first time, which, which as you're going to see, was by God's instruction. 
And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. Because for the same problem. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So at this time, God tells him, you need to smite the rock. And he told him to do that because of the picture. Remember, Christ is the rock, and smiting the rock the first time pictured Christ's first coming as he was beaten and died on the cross for our sins. In a prophetic picture of Christ's first coming, the prophet Isaiah said this, in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That is exactly what happened. He was smitten as a sacrifice for you and for me. But that only happened once. You see, he will come again. He will step foot on this earth a second time, but trust me, he will not be smitten then. And that's where Moses messed up the picture, because smiting the rock twice says that his first sacrifice wasn't enough. But, oh, dear Christian, it was. Romans 6.10, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And Hebrews 10.12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. Once was enough. And like I said, he will come back again. But when he does, it will not be as a suffering servant. It will be as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So do you see why Moses' error was such a big deal? The picture is that important. God does not like pictures of Christ being perverted. Which brings me to a question. How many times do we mess up God's picture? Because there are a lot of pictures related to us and Christ in the New Testament. If you want to hear what they are, you can start with last year's Certainty Conference. Let me give you one example. I think we know from Ephesians 5 that the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Well, men, How many days of the week do you pervert the picture of Christ in your marriage? And ladies, how many days a week do you dishonor Christ by dishonoring your husband? Don't mess up the picture. Have you ever wondered why God makes such a big deal over things like sexual purity and and seems to treat sins like fornication and adultery and divorce for unbiblical grounds, why he seems to treat them more severely than others. There's a picture there that he doesn't want messed up. So don't do it. It's a big deal. 
You see, when we read stories like Numbers 20, we have to make it personal. How many times do we disobey God's direct and specific command? How many times do we distract from and even steal glory that is reserved for him alone? And how many times do we destroy the pictures that God has put for this, to point this world to him? I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that when we do, there are consequences to pay. Because when we do those things, it just shows where we're at with the Lord. It shows what we really think of Him and the strength or weakness of our faith. And I say that because of how God described what Moses did. Because Moses made those three major mistakes that we just walked through. But look again at verse 12 to see how God described it. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. He summed it all up this way. You didn't believe me. It is all unbelief. And listen, when it comes to our life and the bad decisions we make, it is all just unbelief too. It doesn't matter what you say. Your actions against the Lord are because of unbelief. Earlier, earlier, we talked about how the Bible will always work if we approach it correctly. It is sufficient in all areas of life. And yet, I know many people whose experience has been different. It hasn't worked. And many of them have walked away from the Lord because of it. And maybe you're on the verge of, of that. And maybe you're thinking, why doesn't the Christian life work for me? Why doesn't the Word of God have any impact in my life? It's because you don't believe. Your approach is unbelieving. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It is only going to work if you believe. And if you don't believe, there are dire consequences to be paid. And I don't know exactly what that will look like in your life, but I, I know that it will look like Moses' life in this way. It will include limitation. You see, Moses didn't get all that God had for him. And the same thing will be said of you as well, because God flipped the script on the picture. Since Moses met, messed up the picture God intended, God created a new one. And he used Moses as a picture of the law to show that the law can never bring about spiritual maturity. Again, what Canaan represents. Let me say it this way. Legalism or religion without full trust and belief never produces true spirituality. There's always a limit. So let me encourage you today. To believe the Lord and follow his prescription for your life so that there is no limit. Go get all that God has for you. It is worth all that it costs. But maybe you're out there and you're thinking, I would love to do that, Troy. But it's too late. I've already made some bad decisions in my life. And the consequences are already in motion. I'm already limited in where God can take me. 
Well, here's my counsel to you. Believe the Lord and follow his prescription for your life anyway. It's no different. Maybe you are limited, but God is still worth it. You know what Moses did after God told him that he wouldn't be able to enter the promised land because of his sin? Numbers 20, 14. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. He just kept going. He just kept following the Lord. He just kept leading those rebels. He just kept doing what he was supposed to do. I think it would have been easy for Moses to be very discouraged and quit. But he didn't. I mean, we don't even, we don't even see where Moses gets it right with the Lord necessarily. We just see Moses keep being faithful. So can you have the same approach as Moses? Well, let me ask it this way. What does it take for you to quit? You know God is going to be faithful. I mean, he still gave water in this story. There's so much we didn't even talk about in this story. He still gave water in the midst of the Israelites complaining and Moses' unbelief. Abundantly. He's still faithful. Will you be? Even if you've already messed up. Even if you're limited because of past decisions. Will you keep following the Lord just because he's worthy? Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. With thy goodness like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. My prayer is that your heart will be committed to him. I'm going to pray here in a second, and the praise team is going to come back up. We're going to have one final worship song. That is your time to commune with the Lord. That is your time to get it. If you need to get something right with him, get it right now. Get it right today. Why wait? If not now, then when? And when it comes to serving the Lord, if not you, then who? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for, for these stories we see in, in the Old Testament and the book of Numbers and how pertinent they can be to our life. And and just what they need to teach us. Lord, I pray you continue to use your word to work on every single one of us in the areas we, we need uh, 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 more faith, less unbelief. Lord, help us to trust you, to trust your word in, in everything, in all of our life, in the hard times as well as the good. And Lord, let that be glorifying to you. Let our lives sanctify you in, in the just between us and you and in front of this entire world, uh, that you be glorified in us. We love you. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to worship the Lord together. Uh, but if you need to get something right with them, do it today.